Hello and welcome to a new episode of Pat's Chat. Today, I have a really awesome guest, awesome CEO or CEO of three awesome companies, how he says himself, Rizal Aziz. Uh, hi and welcome, Rizal. How are you today? Hey, Patrick. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm actually quite excited uh, and uh, very, very happy to be able to do officially my own first interview uh, on a podcast. Wow, that's cool. Then I'm very honored I can be the first uh, guy to interview. Uh, also excited here. I uh, think a lot to, to tell, explain. Um, I know you're Malaysian, but maybe you tell me first where, where in Malaysia you're from. Well, that's, that's the thing. Um, I, it's very complicated because <laughs> I was actually born in Newcastle uh, in the UK because uh, my parents were there. Um, and it's a, it's a running joke. Anyone from the UK, they find out that I'm uh, born in Newcastle, they immediately call me a Geordie. So uh, Geordie are uh, the, the guys who are, you know, the northerners uh, in England. And, uh, you know, they are very close to the Scottish guys, so they're quite rough. Um, okay. But apparently they have their own uh, dialect, which is very thick. Now, I, I can't speak Geordie and I, I, I can't really speak uh, the English dialect really well because I was only there to about for I think four or five-ish and then we came back to Malaysia and uh, generally uh, I grew up in uh, Bandar Bangi so that's in Selangor um, okay. then I went out and uh, I went all over the place yeah you went all over the place uh, okay interesting story uh, which I didn't know <laughs> to discover that um, you went all over the place namely that means you study also you have a bachelor in commerce and uh, an MBA also in the Victoria University um, so Australia was your uh, next uh, step outside of Malaysia yeah I like to take things uh, very small I guess um so when I was studying in Bandarbangi I did it I did my part of my elementary junior high and junior high and then in high school I went overseas when I say overseas don't think overseas outside the country actually overseas to Penang for two years <laughs> uh, okay. then uh, I got offered to to join uh, the Australian Consortium of higher education so that's a, a program where they, it's a matriculation program where they take uh, students from Malaysia, you study for a few years here and then you get sent overseas. But uh, my time was 1998. So right smack at uh, the, the economic crisis and uh, you know a whole bunch of people couldn't go. So luckily my parents decided that you know um, studying overseas have, has its values and that they wanted me to be independent. So they sent me to Australia, a beautiful city of Melbourne and uh, I spent a good seven years there uh, doing my degree uh, and master's as well, back to back. Uh, it was the best time of my life, back I would say. <laughs> the study time. Many people say it's the best time, uh, of course. Um, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Nice. So in Australia, not only you did study there, but also your first jobs you you take in Australia. Uh, if I see that correctly, mm. as a accountant, account manager, is that correct? Yes. So, you know, for when I want to, I want to retrace back. So when I say it was an awesome time in Australia, partly because, you know, Australia has um, a very um, high minimum wage. So their per hour rate, you know, is like at that time was about $12 per hour. 
And uh, if you times the Malaysian ringgit, you times three, so it's about 36. And uh, I loved it so much that on my final year, when I was doing my degree, I put all my classes in one day and the rest of the days I worked. Of course, you know, there's a limitation. You can only work for 20 hours a week, but you know, we can always you know, check away, you know, how, what is, define what work is. Is it when you sign the paper or you do that and so on? So when I was there, I think I was the richest student there because I was so cash rich. <laughs> I was doing everything. I did a uh, part-time in accountancy. I did uh, selling phone lines. I worked in restaurants. Uh, I picked berries, uh, you know, went, uh, volunteered for the Olympic and also for tennis, uh, the tennis open as well in Melbourne. You always have to do that one thing in your life. You tried it. And uh, when, I, when I did all that, I realized that I really enjoyed uh, the life in Australia so much. And I, I found my real passion. So even though I did accountancy for both my degree and my master's, um, I realized that the numbers were fun, were very cool to deal with. You know, it's very exact. Um, but uh, I realized that, hey, People is what drive me. So I never actually stayed on for an accountancy role beyond, you know, a year plus. I, I straight away moved out from that and did everything else you, you can under the sun uh, apart from accountancy. <laughs> That's the interesting part. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Okay. That, that was your passion. And uh, you had another passion at that uh, time that eventually led you to the next country. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, Nihon. So that's <laughs> Dippon or Japan. Yes, yes. I went to Japan uh, after a good seven years uh, in Australia. Well, actually, at that time, I was, uh, my, my, my former partner was from Japan. So uh, we went there. Uh, we went back, you know, if you want to put it correctly, and uh, literally jumped. Uh, from one place to another. And when I was leaving, I had three cars uh, in Australia. I had three Honda cars. Uh, I'm a Honda fan at that time. So I had one classic Civic, one quite new Civic and a Honda Prelude. And I was living the life. Um, then we decided to just give it all away and then went to Japan for a new, another adventure. And I gave away all my cars to own a bicycle in Japan because uh, <laughs> it's a whole completely different country. Um, but then that that gave me a different challenge because, you know, uh, even though I had so many experience under me, going to Japan means you're going to an alien uh, location where you no know, English is not predominantly used. And I was heading to Osaka. So it's not Tokyo. Mm -hmm. Tokyo, a lot of the HQs are there. Yep. Companies are there. And Osaka, even though it was the second biggest uh, state or prefecture at that time, um, it wasn't so prominent. So it was quite hard. Then I realized uh, the biggest industry in, in Japan for foreigners is language or education. Yep. So that's why I went in. I, I just wanted to say I, I was living uh, nearby Osaka in the 99 oh. uh, around, yes. And uh, for me, the most impressive or the biggest surprise when I relocated there is like no one speak English, right? I mean, at that time, yes. really, I mean, maybe some people in Tokyo would speak English or in Osaka yes. and especially like a little bit outside. Uh, no one would speak like English at all. And um, where was so, that? Uh, where uh, the place was called Tenry. 
So it's like uh, ah, it's, it's nearby Nara, yeah, nearby Nara. Yes, That's yes, the, yes. the previous capital of Japan, right? Uh, yes. So nearby Nara, which is a, a very interesting place because there's so many uh, historical sites there and a lot of culture also. Uh, oh, quite Nara. impressive, yeah. <laughs> well, you I know, miss, Nara. Right? I miss Nara. <laughs> I miss Nara very much. Tendi yeah. has a nice international school and university, if I'm not mistaken, there. Yeah, around yeah. there. Ooh, I, so I love Nara, Nara too. Was, I mean, uh, I took my my bicycle mostly from Tendi to Nara. I, I don't remember. It's like maybe 20 kilometers or 15 kilometers. So mostly weekend wow. I spent there. So ni- nice place. But uh, uh, let's let's go back to the language thing because that was, uh, as you said, that was like uh, what you ventured into. That was your next job, right? Uh, the language. And uh, um, can, maybe can you uh, let us know what exactly you did and what... Okay. Um, yeah. This one is interesting. Um, so I did apply for a few jobs. And then whilst applying, I realized that without uh, a strong grasp of Japanese, I won't be able to have an advantage and I can't demand the top job that I want. So the first four months, right, I was really, really busy because I was learning at schools because I wanted to save money. I, I joined volunteer schools in the evening. So in Japan, the, the city councils are very amazing and efficient. They got assimilation programs, language program for free. So anybody comes and teach it. So I was, I was attending classes in the evening and on a day-to-day basis. And then I would set myself in part-time jobs here and there just to meet people and get to know the locals. So in the morning, I was giving out flyers at uh, train stations. In the afternoon, I had this friend or the family um, who owns an Indian restaurant and uh, wanted to hire someone who can serve. So I did that as well. Uh, the interview was very funny because he asked, do you speak any Japanese? I said, no, I don't. Okay, you're good for the job. We learned it. <laughs> yes. Nice. And then uh, in the uh, late at night, I will work in the hotel um, just uh, doing uh, room cleaning uh, also. So we did that for about two and a half months. And what happened was because I was thrown into the deep end, I managed to pick up the language in within less than six months. And uh, that's when I uh, mentioned just now, uh, the language or the education industry in Japan is huge, uh, especially in teaching English. Um, The amount of money people spend on learning English, I would dare say, as much as the amount of money you spend on a degree. So they got lots of disposable income and they love uh, to be able to learn a language from a foreigner uh, for any language, but of course, predominantly it's English. Mm -hmm. So I went in and they realized that, you know, I didn't really have a strong accent. I really had a very basic accent. It was very understandable. I came from a professional background and I had some management capability. So they got me to do some teaching first. Then within the space of two years, I was promoted from uh, an, an, an instructor to a trainer, from a trainer to an assistant manager. And then suddenly have something, one boss went away. I went up to lead the foreign team over there. So year on year, I was, you know, recruiting people from all over the world coming to Japan uh, to teach. And the, the company itself had about 300 plus schools, uh, small, small oh. schools and shop mm-hmm. lots and so on across Japan. And they had two international schools. And they also supply instructors to companies, universities and whatnot. So the roster would be about you know 500 plus foreigners coming in from all over the world uh, teaching English. So oh. big money, 
Big money. <laughs> big money. Nevertheless, big money, you decided, like, after well, six, seven years in Australia, six, seven years in Japan, you decided to go back to Malaysia after so long time. Like, what was, uh, what was the trigger for that? And also, how did for you, like, the country change after you were not there for, like, 14 years? Yes. You know, uh, before I answer that, that 14 years I was away, I was only back in Malaysia for 13 days because I flew back from Australia, wow. landed here, did yeah. a few things and left. So my parents were quite happy. They said, do, your, do whatever you want. So I'm very thankful for that, for them, for giving me that opportunity to just do what I want. So um, close to the 14th year when I was in Japan, uh, there's this thing, Talent Corp was, uh, you know, uh, talking about the returning expert program and I really liked it I love the concept that's the key mm -hmm. word I love the concept whether the concept worked or did they do anything about it I, that's a different story um, <laughs> so the whole idea was to bring professionals back into mm -hmm. Malaysia and then help influence uplift and upskill uh, the workforce locally so I, I love the concept so I applied for it and I got it and I felt that it was time for me to move back and uh it was the, the toughest decision because uh, rightly so when you ask that question, you know, how was it to be after coming after living away for so long and you suddenly want to make that move back? Whoa, you know, people talk about culture shocks. Culture shocks is never about when you're going somewhere. It's when you return to be able to assimilate. <laughs> wow. So it was the yeah. toughest toughest uh you know first year of my life when i came back here to malaysia you know coming from australia where it's very westernized and then japan systematic very fast to the beautiful smelly stinky noisy rouge uh, <laughs> people in malaysia but i always tell people that um that's the beauty of Malaysia because you come back, you get all that, you know, you got, it's very messy. People are on the way for one, two hours. They yeah. come to work late and the people take, uh, <laughs> the people take things very chill. Uh, governments all over the place, but you know, Hey, it's home and I love it. Yeah. You yeah, cannot yeah. find it anywhere. Yeah, that's me. It is different when you come Best home. Yeah. But would you say it was more difficult? Uh, was that what you just said? Like it was more difficult to come home than to go to Australia and even to Japan? Yes, yes. So it's just uh, the it's reverse culture shock when you come back. <laughs> it's, uh, shock. You know, <laughs> yeah. I came back with uh, Air Asia and I landed in the LCCT. Uh, LCCT. So that's before... Uh, KLIA 2 so you imagine you know from uh, Kansai Airport which is so beautiful so mm -hmm. nice you know very clean yeah. I landed yeah. in LCC 2 because I was I wanted to save money right it was like a bus station and <laughs> I was like oh my god where am I where have I been and uh, <laughs> I felt like I just left uh, 14 years ago and came back nothing much really changed <laughs> but that was my first impression my first yeah. impression yeah? yeah but then yeah, yeah. over time I realized that the country has moved so much more forward and, you know, um, it has evolved. And mm -hmm. uh, I really, really thought that was the best decision that I made. Uh, and I really love my country, you know, so many times more. Uh, I don't know. Beautiful. That's just me being patriotic here. Yeah. But I nice. can only feel that because I left. Yeah. Of course. Uh, beautiful. Yeah. Once you left, you know what you're missing, right? That's uh, what we say usually. You come, yeah, yeah. you came back to Malaysia uh, uh, to become a general manager of a law firm. How, how did that fit like in the past? What you had done, like becoming language teacher, accountant, uh, even managing yeah. like that language school? 
then you become general yeah. manager of a law firm. Yeah. So you know, my I I've so I don't know. I think it's serendipity or just luck or fortune. Everywhere I go, I tend to, I wanted to find something that you know could fit my personality. Uh, which is you know people. I wanted to be able to deal with people. I'm not a process person. Uh, I'm not a policy person. If you can see, uh, you know, from my background uh, and. Uh, when I was in Japan, I was already at a general manager level. So when I came back here, I wanted something where I can oversee the whole business operation. I like to be able to make an impact. When I come in, you know, I want to be able to talk to people and motivate, uh, hmm. lead, and make sure that you know business implementation you know, gain traction. And whatever that we do, we can always improve. So uh, when I came back, I applied for many jobs. I think I had about. 30 plus interviews that I arranged uh, after in, after applying and I did that because I wanted to see what's out there so mm-hmm. I went from GLCs uh, SMEs mid-sized firms and whatnot and then I met this law firm that I uh, uh, the first one, which is Wong and Partners. And I didn't know much about law firms because I never from that background. But then when I studied very closely, they're actually from Baker McKenzie, which is the biggest law firm in the world uh, in 77 uh, offices in, in 49 countries. Uh, and I thought that, wow, this is where I want to be. And I love their vision. And I met the people, the toughest interview ever um, and the longest, inter- longest uh, wait Till I got an offer from them, so I held back a lot of the offers because I can't kind of like that one, and I got it. And uh, the rest is history. It was six amazing years of uh, working with high-caliber people who are, you know, at the top of uh, 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 the legal fraternity in the region, if not the world. <laughs> yeah, interesting, and uh, it becomes even more interesting because, like, now we have like a very good overview of, of the past. Um, of the past when you were employer all the time, and uh, again, this this uh, podcast is about entrepreneurs and and their journey. We come to your entrepreneurship, which started uh, only recently. I mean, uh, you're very young in that term, uh, entrepreneur. You started your companies this year and last year, um, and when I say companies, I mean you not only started one company, but you started three companies in in total. Uh, we 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 dig into that. Uh, just in a moment but uh, maybe let me know first like from being uh, employed like for 15 20 years almost becoming an entrepreneur what what was your motivation for that uh, what changed your mm. mindset in like now it's time to become uh, start your own thing basically yeah thanks Patrick that 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 was actually uh, something that always looms in my mind. Um, so after I joined uh, Wong and Partners, uh, and I left after six years, and I joined at, at another law firm, which is a a regional Southeast Asian focus uh, regional firm uh, called Raja Antan Asia, and it's much smaller, uh, and they have ten offices across the region, and they wanted someone of my ability and experience to be able to not only manage the local office but you know uh, support in the shared services center uh, which is outsourcing within the network and also assist with the learning and development uh, plans for the region so when i came in you know uh, uh, from a very rigid and large complex matrix uh, law firm like baker mckenzie you know, you want to implement things, you, can get, you need to get four or five approvals. When I went to Raja and Tan, mm. I'm, de- I'm dealing directly with the big boss. 
yeah. you know, the, yeah. the, the, the chairman. And mm-hmm. then he goes, Rizal, you know, whatever you want to do, propose. Whatever you want to say, propose, you know, just say. And then everything that I say, a lot of it, they, they like it, they approve it, and they support. And that really got me as like, wow, lawyers or law firms, you know, I always thought they're very rigid. But actually, no, they're like entrepreneurs. And they, they, they really got me thinking that if these guys, you know, at the forefront of what they do, they're very good. And what they do, but they're also thinking innovatively. Why can't I do the same myself? So I fell in love with learning and development. So that was the catalyst, the initial catalyst that got me thinking that, hey, maybe, you know, I've been away for quite a long time. I could probably do something about my knowledge and then share it with people. So initially it was just, you know, going on speaking, uh, speaking engagement for free. But now I put myself in the market uh, as someone who can deliver training, who can become a keynote speaker and also help those, you know, um, graduates or, you know, for people who are juniors or those who are in the management level who want to step up, you know, learn all those skills from me. And I'm, I'm not stingy when it comes to that kind of stuff. I, I really go for it. So because of that, I, I decided to, you know, Eight months in advance, I thought about it and I saved all the money that I have and then started off the company. And I realized, as you know, as I mentioned, I cannot sit still. And I met a few <laughs> people along the way. And I think my skills has always been identifying talents. And I met, you know, um, some of the guys who formed TechRabbit, which is my digital arm. And then that's yeah, yeah, studio, my creative studio. Mm-hmm. So that's where it, 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 it just all went boom. Uh, these, are, these are all small business projects that later on would become big self-sustaining projects and then they will change to businesses. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You obviously cannot stand still with the three companies. Um, Red Pack Asia is one where you see your, your cap. Um, yeah, thank very you. nice. That, that one is uh, focusing on uh, management consulting, right? And, and training, yep. as you mentioned. Yep. And you have the tech rarebit, social media yep. marketing, um, and the yeah, yeah, yeah studio. <laughs> that is for, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that is for media and, uh, audio, uh, maybe also podcast. What, what are you, um doing with yeah 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 studio what is this about okay for yeah 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 studio uh is made up of um two uh award-winning musicians and producers they've been in the industry for 20 years they they've been performing in uh in asia uh in the united states uh, they travel around the world and perform and i got two award-winning uh, creative visuals who also are, one of them is tied into a, a uh TV station and another one is you know working directly with us at the moment so we got together and we had a few ideas and um, they why I came into the picture was because hey I said to them you guys are doing this this is very cool I've got knowledge about you know how the education uh, for children especially um, uh, early childhood education because of my experience in Japan and I told them that you know in Japan you got songs you got things for kids you know um, like um, if you go to Japan kids songs cover everything that the kid can see and touch you got a song to brush your teeth you got a song to wake up you got a song to shower you got a song to have breakfast you got a song to prepare for lunch you got a song for lunch so uh, it helps you know uh, it, it, it helps develops the kid's mind the children's mind so mm-hmm. there's nothing yeah. here in Malaysia and that's why uh, when we sat down and talked about it wham bam we've got 40 songs uh, ready and it's done in a way where it can be translated in, into any languages. 
So okay. it could be done in English, yeah. it could be done in Malay, Indonesian, mm-hmm. uh, Korean, and Japanese and Chinese. So we got all these versions already, and we're just slowly building up our database. Yeah, in- interesting. Yeah. So, so uh, anyone want to record uh, songs can come to your studio. Did I get that right? Yes. So um, even though we are focusing on digital animation and production, uh-huh. uh, we do have a capability to do recording. So it is a new. Product that we're having, so yeah. we create audio signatures or sync, uh, synchro. I think it's called synchro branding, mm-hmm. um, where people can create their own jingle, their own brand jingle or their brand okay. song. So we've had uh, two already, uh, and we're taking baby steps because initially the focus on that was in that digital animation, yeah. but yeah. I think somewhere around next month we will definitely go and push uh, that service out to people because uh, I think people now love visibility and personal branding and what better way to make it more spicier if you do have a kick-ass song uh, backing you as a brand (laughs) very nice very nice I see you're also very skilled in marketing (laughs) 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 the tech rabbit is uh, more on the social marketing social media marketing but let me ask you another question like before I ask you like okay you had to start three companies um, but how do you see is do you see currently like more of a leverage effect that you can use resources across the three companies or you see more like it's also a challenge right to to manage three different companies like uh, in parallel ah it, it is definitely a challenge it's no joke uh, it's not easy um and then For me, uh, in the past eight years when I was in the law firm, I was always double or triple or quadruple hatting. I would have a local role, a regional role, contribute to a global uh, initiative. uh, And it's been the norm for me to be able to direct many, many teams. So as the CEO, all I need to make sure is that the structures are there, the business plans are there, and we keep track. And if you need to make adjustment, make sure there's buy-in and support and everybody just go and push on that. So... It is, it, it, is, it is not easy, um, but I do know that if I only focus on one thing, I'll probably get bored. Um, but the most important part is that uh, if you, you know my hashtag, so my hashtag is called the complete leader and it's uh, what I truly believe uh, in uh, is that nobody is complete. And if you know yourself very well, um, you can see areas where you, can, you have weaknesses and you find either a way to uh, improve yourself or you get people to fill in that gap and do assist you on that. So that's mm-hmm. how all these companies come in because um, these companies are, they all self uh, support each other. They're, 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 it's, an, it's a small ecosystem. So you're right. Um, the resources do you know, uh, go in that small world and they help each other, but we try mm-hmm. to keep it separate. They actually build each other. So that there's nothing like, you know, uh, taking advantage or misusing uh, each other's capability. Mm, yeah. Uh, but we do sit in together and discuss and make sure that all three companies move forward together. And uh, nice, so nice. far, it's so good, but uh, tough, but I, I love it. Tough, yeah. Okay. And yeah. you just mentioned the hashtag, the incomplete leader. I, I quickly wanted to touch on that because uh, you had to come up with something like that first. Um, uh, where do you see, or what was your experience for yourself when you thought like, wow, this is uh, something you really struggled with that, that, that made you an incomplete leader. That was something you had to learn first because 
I learned from the failures uh, before. Uh, what is the the one or two things that you can remember that um, made wow. you now a more complete leader? No, we'll never be complete. That's the thing. <laughs> I'm more complete. We'll I'm more complete. complete. <laughs> I'm more complete. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the, this is this the incomplete leader came up recently because I, I realized that you will never be able to please everyone, and when you are in a leadership role, people have certain expectations of you, and if you as a leader you think that because you are in that position you have absolute power, you're wrong, uh, and I believe that. Um, when you are in power, you need to be completely aware of who you are and how you impact people. And then you will have uh, some areas that, you know, may not gel, uh, may not be appreciated or some areas that, you know, you don't do because it's not something that you're used to or something, some value that you don't believe in. So this all came about, especially when I was in Japan. Uh, I learned, uh, I learned the fact that uh, in Japan, uh, a lot of the focus was on how long you've been working there, and whether you whether you know certain people within the within the company to be able to get things done. Uh, and I realized I didn't have that language ability to that extent to be able to communicate with some of the big bosses. But I made sure that I have a good network. And I used my vulnerability and also where I'm weak at. And I, I started working with different people who can get what I want. So it was recognizing my weakness. And another one was an experience that I had one years ago when I was in um, junior high school. I was always, uh, I'm quite noisy uh, and I'm always an attention seeker. I'm an extrovert, uh, what to do. So um, I was nominated uh, to become the team uh, the sports team lead when I was in year 11, 10, year 10. No, sorry, year nine. So I was, you know, I was quite young. And then here I am, uh, suddenly being nominated to become a sports leader for which includes the year 10 and year 11. And they asked me to come and, you know, they were all clapping. Hey, great result. You're going to be the team sport. And I'm so excited. The next day we had a team meeting. And then here I am with the microphone trying to brief the team and trying to get them excited. When I spoke, there was no reaction because I didn't have the respect from um, the seniors above me. They thought that, who is this young guy? Who's this wannabe? He wants to be there. I don't even know him. I know him because he's, he's loud. He likes to be on stage. He's always the MC. But is he really a good leader? And that taught me that, you know, you can, you can, you know, in later years, you know, I realized that that experience taught me that, you know, you, you, you always think that you are somewhere, but in the reality, you do have areas that you just don't have strength in, or you're not aware about. Mm. So the incomplete is about knowing your incompleteness. Nice. Yeah. Okay. I like that story. Um, the incomplete leader, you announced a, a book for this year coming out. Will that be the title or is it at least connected to that topic? It is absolutely going to be the title, man. That's like my handle. <laughs> okay. So, the incomplete leader. So uh, it will be, there will be some some additional words. I'll probably put the incomplete leader's journey or the journey of the incomplete leader. Uh, yes, uh, it's a book. Thank you for mentioning it. It's a book that I'm writing. So I'm almost, I'm 75% there. Uh, I never realized the difficulty in writing a book. You know, it sounds easy, but actually, you know, you just ramble on and write. When you read it later, it's like, oh dear, there's so much work that needs to be done. But uh, the messaging that I wanted to, to share with people is that whatever issues that you face in life or especially at work, when either you are in a leadership position or you are going to be a leader or you are a reluctant leader. 
uh, I just want to voice out in there my experience that you can relate to. And you also learn that um, being a leader is not about the title. Uh, is where the heart is, is where your values are and your passion. And uh, it's just some very simple stories that uh, can connect to my experience. And I hope that people can learn through it and then they start to be able to sense their own incompleteness. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. No one is complete. Uh, no one is ready for leadership. We just need to learn, uh, constantly uh, find ways to improve and then realize that you have weaknesses that you need to work on. Beautiful words, I have to say. Uh, I think it's uh, also a very, very uh, beautiful closing uh, sentence or sentences for our chat. I really loved it. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Rizal, uh, for your time, for sharing your journey, uh, your success story, uh, your challenges that you had, and uh, especially the journey throughout uh, the world that you made. Thank you so much for that. No worries. Thank you, Patrick. I really appreciate the opportunity and it's great talking to you. <laughs> Your first podcast session. Congrats. And uh, um, again, I'm very honored uh, you were on my, uh, on my small podcast for the first time. Uh, thanks for watching and listening to, to the episode. I hope you liked it. And then I see you next week for another episode of Pat's Chat. Thanks. Have a great day.